In addition, we have a second, which is sort of a description of the Lord's chastisement. We're going to sort of begin there. I ended early, so we can pick up there as a means of refreshing again. Third, the third section in this chapter is the relationship of God to Israel. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning focusing, because in many respects, Israel being God's people, his example people, give us insight into the relationship that we enjoy as his people, the church. So, uh, the, and, and the overall theme, the overarching theme of all of Hosea is this gospel thread that runs throughout. And this chapter is no different. Uh, it talks about the salvation uh, that is provided for Israel and ultimately for all people solely and completely by God. So, Let's dive, Let's dive in this morning. morning. Uh, <clears throat> begin verses 7 and 8. He, he says, Therefore, I will be unto them as a lion, and as a leopard by the way I will observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps, and will rend the call of their heart, and there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. So, so just a, a recap for sake of, of our context, God is responding. The therefore is in response to the idolatry that Israel is in. Uh, that being adulterous, so going all the way back to those early chapters where God used that illustration um, of his people. They've fallen into depraved sin and they promoted that idolatry and that depravity as normal lifestyle. That's, That's what, what they're, they're doing day in and day out. Yeah, I'll remind you of verses, verses four and five. Um, says, yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, Egypt and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. I did know thee in the wilderness and in the land of great drought. Um, they have been God's people. Uh, promise all the way back to Abraham uh, and going forward through the patriarchs. And God has known them and delivered them throughout their history. He has preserved them. He's even put them into the womb, for lack of better terms, of Egypt to multiply them and make them a great people. And now they're a nation. And they're delivered out of Egypt and that bondage that they're in there. They choose very early on in that liberty to not walk by faith as they come to the promised land. But God, but God has known them and, and their choice and their operation throughout the recorded history that we find in Scripture is full of ups and downs. Walking by faith and walking by sight. Choosing to follow the Lord and walk as His people and choosing to fall into idolatry and sin. Secondly, God in His love for His people and in faithfulness to His word will chasten them. His, his intent is to turn their hearts back towards him. That's his purpose. And throughout all of their history, we've seen that over and over again. It's an expression of his love. And in the first few verses of this chapter, um, I think I switched my... I think verses 4 and 5 apply here. The first three verses apply to the first point. But you, you understand, understand what I'm saying, saying right? That here, here we have this confirmation of God's faithfulness to them, that he is going to be their Savior. Uh, that he's going to continue to be their God. So God's righteous and just chastisement of Israel 
Now, as, as we talked, talked about this a few weeks ago, we looked at God's uh, entire nature, all of his character, all of his attributes as he's revealed himself to us in Scripture are a full play all the time. And so here it is, God can't condone the sinfulness that they're living in, he has to deal with it. And he's promised that he would. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, let's turn there for just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you might keep your finger in Deuteronomy, we'll be back and forth uh, to that book several times this morning. Deuteronomy 8, verses 18 through 20. God's speaking to the nation of Israel, to his people, says, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do all that, do it all, forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall you perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord our God. There's this promise that God won't condone sin, that he will deal with it. And that nationally, they will lose their identity, and that's kind of what's happened, is they have fallen into idolatry under Solomon. Well, Solomon's heart fell into idolatry, and the kingdom ended up being divided as a consequence of that. And ultimately, they perpetuate that cycle in this northern kingdom of Israel through Jeroboam I, where they establish idolatry as the primary means of worship to Keep control of that country. Can't have them going over Jerusalem to worship as God has commanded. We're going to use this mechanism. And that's where they, uh, in Dan and in Rishiba, they have their calves and their, their idols and all those things. This is where they're at. And so God has said and warned them over and over repeatedly, this is the consequence. This is what will happen. And that's exactly what is going to happen. In Hosea chapter 5, if you want to uh, work your way toward Amos, which is just the, the next book over, but in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 14, says, For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. So this is something that God himself is doing. He is the corrector of his people. Though Assyria is the instrument that's the tool that God is going to use providentially and sovereignly to correct his people. He is the agent and he is the sovereign of that correction. In Amos chapter 3, verse 8, remember that Amos and Hosea are contemporaries with one another. They both are prophets to this northern kingdom. And so they're very similar. In Amos 3.8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Ultimately, what Amos is saying is that God has said, so now it's going to be done. It's a sure thing. And we've encountered that in the book of Hosea before, that here it is, God has spoken, and this is imminent, it is coming. And the only response for us is to repent. And even if we repent, it's probably still coming. However, we can bow our hearts. We can submit ourselves to the Lord, even in the midst of that chastisement. In verses 15 and 16 of Hosea chapter 13, he says, Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come up, 
The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Samaria, which is a reference to that kingdom, to the northern kingdom of Israel, shall become desolate, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women shall be ripped up. There's, this is what is coming. This is what history records. That's a description of what is going to happen. That is a description of the chastisement that God is bringing to his people. Therefore, we can understand that an unrepentant and an unresponsive heart will be corrected. That God has promised even you and I, his people, uh, as saints of the Lord, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we will be corrected for our unrepentance, for our uh, unresponsive hearts. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. He says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. I just want to pause there for a moment, okay? All it's saying is that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for sins. This is a description. This is written to Hebrews, but they're Hebrew believers. So there isn't some other offering that we bring. There isn't some other mechanism or rededication that is necessary. That's, not what, that's all he's saying here. Jesus Christ paid the penalty once and for all. As we've talked about as we look in First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, the foundation is laid and we choose how we build on that foundation. And the only discussion to be had after that is are we receiving reward for the way we're living or are we receiving correction and loss of that eternal reward for the way we're living? It makes very clear in that passage in Corinthians that we're saved and that we didn't lose salvation by choosing to build poorly. Same principle is at work here, and that's what's being described. So if we sin willfully, we choose to engage in sin like Israel has done. There's not some other yet future uh, work of grace that we are looking forward to, some other salvation experience that is somehow necessary. He goes on, verse 27, But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. What we can look forward to when we choose to engage in sin is God's corrective hand. A fearful looking for of judgment that God is going to deal with us. He continues on, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified in a holy thing and has done despite under the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God told you and I, as he, just as he told Israel, he said, listen, be holy even as I am holy. He didn't give the Ten Commandments as a mechanism to earn salvation. He gave the Ten Commandments as a mechanism, as a means to convey to us how we might live holy, how we may honor him in our life. 
So when we choose to engage in things that are sinful, what we can expect is that God is going to deal with that. Now, we're not talking about eternal salvation and loss of that or anything like that. What we are talking about is in this life, a preservation of the witness that God has given us as his ambassadors. And ultimately, when we look at the hand of God as he deals with Israel, that's what he's concerned about is his glory, his witness. And even in your life and in my life, as those ambassadors, as those witnesses, we would expect that God would deal with us the same as we've mentioned over and over through our study in Hosea. God is going to correct us for our willful indulgence and sinfulness and for our unresponsiveness and an unrepentant heart. In Hebrews chapter 12, it makes even clearer statements to you and I. We've been here before, but beginning in verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. My son, despise thou, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Right? Just because we're receiving some correction doesn't mean that woe is me. In, in other words, words right, we, we need to interpret that and understand it as God's love extended towards us. That he would be willing to condescend in whatever respect to you and I as his children and correct us in our sinfulness. To bring us back to a position where we can accurately represent him. To bring us back to a position where we can now build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with things that are worthwhile. He continues on, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons, for what son is he whom the Father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, and you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we pause there. Right? Right? There's, There's a surety that we, as the people of God, because we struggle with sin, are going to be corrected by God. And if, and if we are responsive, responsive to that, that correction, if we turn our hearts in repentance quickly to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to reap this chastisement, but if we don't, we're going to reap it. He loves us too much to leave us where we're at. And while it may be a fearful thing, a terrible and awesome thing, to fall into the hands of the living God who says, vengeance is mine, and can rightfully say that, we have the assurance as believers that he is not forsaking us in the midst of that. But just as Hebrews 12 said, it is an extension of his love towards us. That those that he loves, he chases. I want to talk for just a moment about, about sinfulness. Because what we, what we need to understand is that just because God is the instrument and the sovereign in chasing and correcting sinfulness, that's, That's not, not where it originated. God didn't set you and I, nor Adam and Eve, up for failure. He's not the originator of the trials that Israel is now reaping. They're self-inflicted. They chose willfully to indulge in things that God had told them not to do, and had warned them specifically for generations what the consequence would be. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And if he sows to the Spirit, he's going to reap life everlasting. If he sows to the flesh, he's going to reap destruction. 
Now, we, we as believers, when we read that, we understand it in, in, in a slightly different context. We're, we're, we're sowing to those things that last for eternity, that are reward, or we're sowing to those things that are consumed. There is a reference there toward the unbeliever, and it being a far more eternal consequence. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's this idea that you and I as believers and every man, woman, and child that has ever lived on this earth has sin. That's the way it is. There is, And I want to talk about this because this is one of the things that we as believers need to be able to give an answer. Uh, and I want to illustrate it by looking at the life of David. So let's turn to Psalm 51. Uh, if you will, Psalm 51. And the first thing I want to note is, as with many of the Psalms, it has a... An, it is ascribed to David, um, and, and it gives the occasion. So this is written by David. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So this is, you will remember the story that David saw Bathsheba. He lusted after her. He sent her husband uh, away. Not, that's the wrong order. That's the wrong order. Right? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Her husband comes home from war. He sends him to the front line so that he'll be murdered uh, so that he can hopefully get away with uh, his adultery. And there, there's more to that story, but ultimately Nathan the prophet comes and confronts Joseph, David with this, with all of this. Now David, who God is clear, is a man after his own heart, was not a perfect man. Clearly. But his response to the confrontation of God through the prophet Nathan is to repent, is to have a soft heart, and he's quick to turn from the sinfulness that he has. And so in Psalm chapter 51, let's begin in verse 1, he cries out and he begins, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Now just pause there for a moment. Here David clearly acknowledges his sin, he calls it sin, and he begs for mercy. In 1 John 1, 8, it says, listen, we all know that we have sin. If we say that we don't have sin, we lie. And then the next verse says, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is exactly what David is begging for. He's asking God to extend mercy to him. Now, here's the thing. Sin originates from mankind. The consequences for sin are God's right and appropriate response to that. It is his just nature. It is his mercy. It is his glory. It is all of those things being preserved. God, God is God, God all the time. time. Now, we, we have, have to understand that our sin, anyone's sin, is against God. 
David says in verse 4, even though he's committed adultery, so there's sin against a person there, he's committed murder, there's sin against a person there, he says against thee in verse 4, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that, I, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Right? He understands that his sin is ultimately against God. That he is God's, uh, God's man. Somebody called a man after God's own heart. Somebody who has been called specifically by God through Samuel to be the king of his people. And we remember that from Romans 13, right, that there is no power other than that which is established by God. He is God's anointed there on the throne of Israel. And he realizes that against God, he has said that his witness to all these surrounding nations isn't that we would be a holy people because we serve a holy God, but that we can get away with things or that we can indulge in sin in the same way that these other nations do. He realizes that he is blaspheming the name of God, and he says, my sin is against you, and only against you have I sinned. Now, for you and I as believers, when we take this and we apply that truth, we have to understand that there is more to this story uh, that our sin against others has to be dealt with. And God addresses that throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I mean, there, there are reparations, reparations that, that may have to be made. That there, there are things that have to be done and made right with the people that we might sin against. They have felt the brunt of the consequence of the sinfulness that we have executed, that we have chosen and willfully chosen to engage in. But our sin is damaging to God, for lack of better terms. In 2 Samuel, turn there with me, 2 Samuel, verse tw uh, chapter 12. Fingers aren't working. I left the furnace down just a little lower, just a touch lower. Maybe it gave up on us. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 13. So, so this, this is this is where we read about Nathan, Nathan coming to David, and this is part of David's response. Second Samuel 12, 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Now here's the thing: we are God's people, and God deals with us the same. God has put away our sin, it is paid for in Jesus Christ. We're not gonna die as a consequence of that sin. But there, but there is something, something to be reaped from it. He goes on in verse 14. Howbeit, because of this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. There's a consequence to David's sin. And, and I want you to notice that there is this discussion about the occasion given to the enemies of the Lord. That they might blaspheme. We talk about it in Christian circles as our witness to so the, so the what we have on the outside that other people might see as we name the name of Christ. And we talk about it here in our church about our profession of faith being consistent 
with the life that we lead. So that the witness that we hold is clear. Now we're going to mess it up. And one of the chief complaints against the church is that it's full of hypocrites. I and mean, that's absolutely true. Their church is full of hypocrites. Because the church is full of sinful people who have been redeemed. The way that we address, and we've said this before, the way that we address the hypocrisy that we may hold is to own up to it, is to repent. And that's what David is doing here. The consequence, God's glory and character were defamed by David's sin. And the consequence corrected David. But more importantly, it clarified who God was and what sin is. So imagine that you're one of the Philistines looking at the nation of Israel, and you see David, and he's, he's obviously, I mean, this is a scandal. People are going to see this, and they're going to understand what's happening, and they see David, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> sudden the child resultant from this adulterous relationship dies. And David mourns, and if you go on and you read through this, David mourns at great length, leading up to the death of that child. And when he, when the child passes away, his servants are somewhat astonished because he he stops. This is the hand, and he this is the hand of God. This is the consequence. This is on me. And he moves on. I'm going to understand this from the same perspective that God understands this. So the people who are outside looking in see all of this, and they see that David is not getting away with sin, that God is still holy just as he said he was, and that he still expects his people to conduct themselves in holiness as he's prescribed and as he's outlined in his word. In Romans chapter 3, just turn there, read it for you. Romans 3, verses 3 through 4. This is a value-added slide, because you know, none, none of this is up here. Romans 3, 3 through 4. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But it doesn't matter what we say or do, every man be found a liar and God be found true. There's a consequence for sin. We don't get to define what sin is. God has already defined what sin is. Not only that, he's left men without excuses, we read in the first two chapters of the book of Romans. And done so by writing it on our hearts, so that even if we don't have a full grasp of the word of God, we have a sense of right and wrong. We have a conscience that has been given to us. We understand, understand that little children are not taught to sin. They understand, uh, know how to do that very well from the beginning. But they try to hide it because they realize that it is wrong. And we as adults sort of justify things a little bit easier and a little bit better than they do. We try to soothe that conscience. When in reality, we need to take every thought captive to the mind of Christ and think about it the way that God thinks about it. It's always been the case, and it's, and it's a primary factor in what is right and wrong. 
sin or righteousness. Right? We understand that all the way back in Genesis. Uh, I'm going to give you a few examples here. I'll write these down. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, this understanding of what is right and wrong. Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, this, that, that's the sin, but this is why it's sin. For in the image of God made he man. It's wrong because it is a representation as flawed as it may be in its sinfulness of who God is. God is clarifying for us. And so here it is that this witness has been lost. It has been ruined. And we, we look, look at today, we look at abortion, we look at the push for all of that. Why is it such a critical thing for us as believers to hold on to? Because it is a part and a witness to the world around them of who God is. And being confronted with that, they reject it or they try to reject it. And the easiest way to reject it is just to put it out of sight, to never see it. To, to kill the thing made, made in the image of God, God even before it was born. born. In Genesis, Genesis chapter 20, 20 verses 3 through 6, this is Abraham and Sarah, and they've come into uh, Abimelech's land, and Abimelech sees Sarah, hey, she's a beautiful woman, and he takes her, he's, she's, she's going to be mine now. And Abraham and Sarah, Abraham says, listen, Sarah, you tell them that you're my sister because I don't want to be murdered because you're a beautiful woman, and they're going to Kill me to get you. Beginning in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said unto him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, what thou slay also a righteous nation. Said he not unto me, she is my sister. And she even herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and the intensity of my hands have I done this. Right, this is this is the idea. God is saying, listen, this is, you're going to be put to death. And this is why if you follow through with this, because this is somebody's wife. So we have the confirmation of marriage as the institution that God has made. It is a man and a woman for life, inseparable. That institution that God created there at the very beginning. Not only that, but the preservation of that, where God has said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That we honor that institution. And Abimelech's response is, well, listen, I haven't done anything. And not only that, they lied to me. And this is God's response. He says, in verse 6, Yea, I know that thou didst in integrity of thine heart. Listen, I know Abimelech, I understand. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Listen, Listen, I am in control here, and I realize that I just remember about that I preserved you from this. You didn't go to her. You know, nothing's happened yet. This is a warning. Therefore, suffer I not to touch not to touch her. So God is, and Abimelech's off the hook, and he confronts Abraham and Sarah, and they have some words, and they end on relatively peaceful terms. But we see here that this is the institution that God has created. The things that he has called good and established are preserved. And that those things that when we begin to tread on them lightly or to esteem them lightly, we call what God says is good, bad, 
or we try, try to change its definition, or what it looks like, or what is appropriate, or what is inappropriate, what is right and wrong, on any front. That begins to be sin. We understand that it is sin against God because it is an affront to Him. What He is called wrong, we're calling right. It is attack on His character. Another example from the book of Genesis, Genesis 39. Genesis 39, verse 9. There is none greater in this house than I, neither has he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This is Joseph. God's leading man as he tries to preserve his people and bring them into Egypt. And here he is in Potiphar's house, and he's second only to Potiphar. I mean, he's running things. Potiphar's wife comes in and says, hey, commit adultery with me. Lie with me. He's like, no. My, my, your husband has trusted me, but not only that. He says, what is sin? It is that which is against God. Not against Potiphar. It's against God. Why would I do that and break the command that God has clearly given? Now, and I want you to understand, this is before the Ten Commandments. This, this is before, before God had Moses write, thou shalt not commit adultery. It was wrong from, from the very beginning. beginning. Why? Because, because God established what marriage is. He defined what it is. So here are examples, right? We could take this same principle and apply it to anything. When we look at God's character, and we look at justice, and we see perverse, perversion of justice, where people get away with heinous crimes, or they're, they're not punished for the crimes that they get, that they've committed. committed. And we, and we look, look at it, we pull our hair out, and there's this sense of confusion and, and, and affront to us, when ultimately that's something that is done against God. Because as God has defined it, there should be a consequence for the wrongdoing. And not only that, I put people in authority, and I didn't give them the sword in vain. They're supposed to execute justice on my behalf. And they choose not to. It's not an attack on... You or I or our sense of justice, it's an attack on God and who he is. It's trying to make a God in their own image. It's idolatry at heart. And it's on all fronts. Here, this is low-hanging fruit. These are easy examples for you and I. We have that example there in Second Samuel Chapter 12 again, where David acknowledges that, hey, my sin was against God. That I've sinned against him, that I've defamed uh, the institution of marriage that he has created, that I've defamed uh, life that is made in his image. He says in verses 9 and 10, uh, Nathan speaking to him, says, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do sight in his evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house. Because thou despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Who did he despise? He despised God. That's, this is God's man. This is the word of God to David through the prophet Nathan. You have despised me. Now, man is sinful from birth, and we have to understand that the origins of sin, 
All this to say, say that, listen, the trials, the hardships, the chastisement, the correction that Israel is now falling under, that you and I may fall under, doesn't originate with God. It is his loving hand of correction because he loves us too much to leave us in the sinfulness that we're in. That he is enthusiastic about preserving his glory and our witness and representation of him to the world around us. But we are sinful. And, and we're, we're sinful, sinful from birth. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. And we understand that. Uh, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, it talks about Adam. And it says, And Adam lived this long, and he had sons and daughters in his own image. In that fallen image, in that image of sinfulness. Now, we are still representatives and made in the image of God. That didn't change. But we are corrupted, corrupted with, with that sin nature from birth. And there's, there's a lot to be said there. There's a lot of uh, discussion to be had about when somebody may be uh, responsible for the sin that they may commit and when, when it may have an eternal consequence. I tend to believe that the Bible teaches, uh, even in the example of David's child with Bathsheba and that grief, that in that very passage, David talks about the innocency of that child, and here it is recorded for us in Scripture, and he talks about seeing that child in heaven. So at some point, there's an age of accountability where, where God holds us accountable for the sin that we have, and I think, that's, I think that is a picture painted from Scripture. When does that happen? Nobody knows. I don't know. And it's probably different with every person. But I think there's some reference to it. Think that, that God, God expounds upon that. In John chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 6. He tells him that what is what is one of the... I'm going to get it wrong here. Let me turn there. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now remember, remember that Nicodemus is coming and he's acknowledged that Jesus Christ, Christ listen, only somebody from God can do the things that you're doing. And Jesus immediately responds, you must be born again. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's in the image of Adam. It's in that sinful nature. That is, and, and as a result, it's an enmity, it's an enemy of God. And as a result of that natural estate, it is bound to destined for hell. But that, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. spirit. In other words, that which has been born again, and he goes on and describes that because Nicodemus says, hey, how am I going to get back into my mother's womb when we born again? That's, and Jesus explains that. He's talking about a rebirth of spirit. That which is born of spirit is, is spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes in, convicts of sin. We respond in faith. The, the salvation, salvation that God has provided solely in Jesus Christ. Christ. And at that, that moment, we are born again. Born in the Spirit. Different nature. Still struggle with the old, but different nature. Romans 6 talks about that. Putting off of the old man that is crucified with Christ. Okay, So the origin of sin started with Adam and Eve. Transmitted to you and I, we are not righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. As cute as my grandson is, 
He's, he's not, not righteous. righteous. There's, There's an absence of righteousness in him because his righteousness is not the same as the righteousness of God. Right, we understand this, we've, we've talked about it, we've been taught about this before, and it's used as an illustration that heat is the absence of cold. Right? Just as unrighteousness, evil, sinfulness is the absence of righteousness. So when God says there is none righteous, no, not one, he's making a statement about you and I and what we lack. And this is important for us to understand. As I said, this is part of what we should be able to give an answer for. This is something that we should be able to discuss with people around us because there are these accusations that if God is good, why would he allow these things to happen? And in some respects, if God is good, there's going to be some hardship because he has to execute justice. Because he's already told us that we are going to reap what we sow because he's not mocked. You and I are going to suffer, in some respects, the consequences of sin around us, just as everyone else is. He didn't originate it. And I'm convinced that Scripture would indicate to you and I that he is grieved by it. But he is still fully God. That means he still has to fully execute justice. As long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish. Giving plenty of time for people to respond in faith, to turn their hearts toward him. Let's get back to this, because this, this understanding of sin becomes foundational as we move forward. He says in verses 9 through 11, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, which is true of every person. For all of sin and all the glory of God. We have destroyed ourselves. But in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities and thy judges of whom thou hast said, Give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Right, so here is this description of, and I'm just going to use the term an advocate. Somebody that stands on our behalf. And God says to them, I will be that advocate. I will be that king, that person that stands in between you. There's no one that can deliver you except me. God, who is uh, fully God, is fully merciful and fully just, and all these things come together in him. In Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 33 through 36, we read, Hear instruction and be wise and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that hears me, watching daily my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. For whosoever finds me finds life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sins against me wrongs his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Now, th this, this is a description of mankind. This is this is a description for you and I of what this advocate looks like. That those who will respond in faith, who will search for God says of Himself, "If you seek Me, you will find Me." Those who will take the witness of creation, the witness of the Scripture, and will seek after Him, they will be He, he will be found of them. 
And not only that will he be found of them, but they will receive the salvation that is clearly offered in Jesus Christ. But those it says that sin against me, those who choose to abide there, wrongs his own soul, they that hate me love death. Because the choice is put before them. Life or death. We choose life in Christ. Others choose death because they're unwilling. Or because, or because they, they, they misunderstand, or whatever the, the case may be. I want to look at a few things here because this helps us to understand the position that God has put himself in on the behalf of his people. Not only on the behalf of his people, but I'm convinced on behalf of every person. Because I don't think that God, in Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for sin for only those who would come to faith. Which is a description of limited atonement. It's something that uh, people talk about. I'm convinced that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all sin, for all mankind, on the cross. Now, it's only efficacious, it's only effective for those who receive it, obviously. But it's available for every person. And I'm convinced of that, now God fully knowing in his foreknowledge who was going to choose him and who wasn't, that didn't matter. He put himself in the position of being the advocate for those who were against him so that he might show his love toward them. All people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's whosoever receives him should not be, should not perish, but have everlasting life. First John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. First John 2, 1 through 3. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sins, right? So here's an exhortation that we would live. Holy lives. We would live lives as a representative of the ambassadorship of the faith that we have in Christ. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The advocate that we have, the one that stands in the, the go-between for you and I, that, that makes the case of our righteousness, is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And, and I, I think, think the righteous, righteous is added there for clarity, for understanding, for you and I. He was made sin so that we could be made his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He continues on and he says, And he is the propitiation for our sins. That's the payment. The exchange that was made was made upon his death. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So who did he die for? Everyone. Not just you and I, not just those who would believe in him. Right? There's not a limited tell. This verse directly is contradictory to that specific doctrine. And hereby, we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. One of the fruits that we will bear, that will, that will confirm to others around us, and not only to ourselves, is that we walk in obedience. We will keep his commandments. Jesus would say himself, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's, it's the, the reciprocation, reciprocation of love that we have for him. Not only that, but I'm convinced in many respects it is an extension of love that we would have for the, for the lost. That it is part of the witness that we hold to the world around us. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. Uh, this is clearly not a, just a New Testament doctrine. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. 
not from anywhere else. Just as we read in Hosea that God himself will be the advocate, the king, the one who's going to redeem them. David looks for the same, excuse me, this isn't a tribute to David necessarily, but the psalmist looks for the same. And this, this is, is an exclusive door. John 6, 68, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. One more reference here, Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ. And wholly and completely by him. He is the advocate. He is the, the promise of what is being looked at here. Now, I don't want to make too much of it, but in, in our description of Israel this morning in the book of Hosea, God says that he's going to be a couple of things to them. He's going to be a lion. He's going to be a leopard. He's going to be a bear. And he's going to be a wild beast. A wild beast without description. Now you remember from our study through Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 8, that in this prophetic looking at of the end times, we see each of these animals, a lion, a leopard, a bear, and a wild beast, each representing some Gentile kingdom that is going to yet in future correct the people of God and bring them back to Jesus Christ. There is some eschatological implication in what we're looking at here because Israel has yet to acknowledge Christ as their Savior. They have yet to look and say, here he is. And as a result of that, as we read here in our text this morning in verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. It's stored up is what it means. At the proper time, God will bring to pass his purpose, his plans, and his ways for Israel. And until then, Romans chapter 2, verse 5 is applicable. That there are those, um, let me just turn there and read it to you. Romans 2.5 says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and is revelation of the judge, righteous judgment of God. That here is Israel as a nation and ultimately as individuals, anyone would do this until they die. That there's a storing up of those things. Uh, the, the New Testament would say that you and I as believers that the handwriting of ordinances against us is blotted out. It's removed completely. 
that, that which is stored up, that, that which, which was recorded against us, is taken off of our account. It's, it's taken, taken out of that book. book. Yeah, yeah, those who choose to continue in and reject Christ, it's stored up for them. And at the proper time, at the time of their judgment, whether Christ comes or they pass away before he comes, it becomes something that they are answerable for. Every man, woman, and child. Israel as a nation and as a people, a special interest to God, has stored up some national sins, some things that are recorded against them as a nation. So this, so this is, is applicable, applicable to them. It's like, like a mother that goes, and, and like a mother that goes into labor, as we read about here in our chapter, it's sudden, and it comes with its full force. He goes on and he says, uh, the sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He has an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. It's going to come and it's going to come suddenly. And you don't know, even though you know that it's coming, because God has talked about it since the very beginning. The date and even the hour is unknown. Right? We can look at a, at a lady and we can say, oh, she's close. We've all seen those ladies as they waddle around, ground and grown, and all the things that extremely pregnant women do. But we don't know the day or the hour. But God does. And, and also, also, he knows the day and the hour of the coming judgment of those things that are yet to come for the, his people, for the nation of Israel. In Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, verse 29 through 31, here's Paul, and he's on the air, Abacus, and he's speaking to about the idol to the unknown God. And he makes this statement. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof, he has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. Here Paul is talking about Jesus Christ. He doesn't name him by name, but he was the one raised by God from the dead. We read about that in Romans chapter 6. And he was raised by the glory of the Father. And that there is a judgment coming. And that we don't think about God in the same terms as these other idols that are here. Or anything that is made by man's hands or that is conceived by man as who God is. He has revealed himself to us in his word, through his creation. And it's confirmed that Jesus Christ alone is the mechanism of salvation. And it confirmed it by the resurrection. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and I referenced this earlier, but I want to go read it. 2 Peter chapter 3 we talk about verse 9, and we, we need, need to understand the context. This is in the context of the end times, of what, what, is, what is yet to come. And it begins in verse 8. He says, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That is in the description of time. All it is saying that everything is the same to God. 
It is going to happen because he said it's going to happen. He's decreed it by his sovereignty, by his providence. He's bringing things to pass. And it's as good as done as far as he's concerned. We live in time, if I can separate God from, from us in that particular fashion, for sake of clarity, things have to play out. But it continues on. The Lord is not slack concerning this promise, as some men count slackness. In other, In other words, God, God hasn't forgotten about all the promises that he made. Those are coming. Not only the promises of reward for you and I as believers and salvation and deliverance from this, the, the deliverance of all creation that groans and looks forward to the revelation of the sons of God. No, not just that, but the promise of judgment that is coming. The promise of those who are apart from Christ receiving their just rewards But he, but he makes this statement. statement. God, God is not slack concerning his promises. promises. He is long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. In other words, God's putting up with things so that all that will come to faith will come to faith. He continues on in verse 10, But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. It's going to be sudden. In which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What manner of people should we be? Knowing that this is coming, knowing that we are the ambassadors of Christ, knowing that we should live a life that is consistent with the profession of faith. So when people look at us, they have a, as clear a picture of Christ as they can have. Looking forward, hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. For you guys, believers, there's a desire and, and even a hope. Right, this marathon has come quickly. Jesus' return for you and I is the, the conclusion of the great victory and the revelation of him as King of kings and Lord of lords to all of mankind. But for those who are lost, it means something completely different. And it is a fearful thing for them to fall into the hands of the living God. So God tells the nation of Israel that he's going to be their advocate. He's going to be their king, the one that stands in the way, that is their representative, their delegate, so to speak, from himself. That the righteousness that is required is not equal to his, and so therefore he is the only offering that can be. And that is the same for every person that has ever lived, for you and I, and it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He also talks about the ransom. He says in verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, I will be thy plague. Oh, grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. With, with the, the same, same vigor which he judges sin, God promises to redeem to save mankind. And notice, notice his fierce stance here, right? He's talking to death. He says, I will be thy plagues. Oh, grave, I will be thy destruction. I repent, I won't return, I won't turn back from this destruction. I'm going to execute it fully. With, with the, the same, same zeal and passion and desire 
to judge sin, God, with that same zeal, passion, and desire, looks to overcome and be the provision of salvation and deliverance from the consequence of sin. He promises all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Where he, where he said that the serpent will be crushed by the heel of the seed of the woman. That being the first utterance of this promise of the deliverer, the promise of the overcoming of the consequence of sin, which is death. And the day that you sin, even thereof, God told Adam and Eve, you will die. And ever since then, people have been dying. He also says here, I will be thy ransom from the power of the grave. I will be that deliverer from the power of the grave, from death. The provision that he's making is himself. And we, we, we've alluded to it. We've even talked about it directly, but I want to conclude with this this morning. This understanding of what has been done on our behalf and what has been done on the behalf of Israel, his people. What he has done, done to deliver them in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And as we read through that chapter, we come to verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's this description. God told Israel, I will be your deliverer. I will be your ransom. And here we have this conclusion as we introduce the gospel of John, the good news as recorded by John, the apostle. How does it begin? That God himself took on flesh so that he himself might be the redeemer of mankind. So that he himself might be the one that would be the propitiation, the payment for our sinfulness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he was made sin. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he was made sin. He was declared to be sin. He was declared to be guilty of all of it from God's perspective. So that you and I could be made his righteousness. So that God may ascribe Jesus' righteousness, righteousness by the way that it is his, because it's the word God himself in the flesh, the God-man, the, the, the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. He was made sin and treated as if he was sin, so that you and I, that are sinful, could be treated as if we were righteous and had the same righteousness as Christ. In Job, which many scholars believe is the oldest book that it in, in scripture, not that, that it records the oldest events, but that it was written even before Moses was inspired to write Genesis. Job 19, verse 25 through 27. For I know, I know that, that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. 
This godly man who God would point out even to Satan and say, have you considered my servant Job? And all the ups and downs and the heartache that Job endured, yet this is his this is his hope, this is what he looks forward to, and he says, my Redeemer, my ransom for the penalty of sin, even though I might be dead, my body is eaten by worms, I will see him with my own eyes. And Job understood that he's alive even now, because he understood fully that his Redeemer was nothing earthly, but it was nonetheless than God himself. And that, that, was was under, understanding. that was his understanding. That was his hope. That, that is what he looked forward to. In 1 Corinthians 15, last reference this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, powerful chapter that begins with the description of what the gospel is. Very simple. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he himself died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he goes on and talks about the witnesses that saw him, even as many as 501 times, who Paul records here, listen, you go talk to them if you don't believe me. The eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. And it discusses the resurrection, and it discusses this looking forward to, just as Job looked forward to, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 through 57. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now that which is corrupt and that which is mortal is a reference to our physical frame. This which we are, our sin nature, that which is flesh, as Jesus said in John 3, 6, is flesh. Now, which is spirit, is spirit. And we're going to be raised again. And just as it says that when we see him, the New Testament says that when we see him, when we see Christ, we'll be like him. And I'm convinced that at that point, we're going to be free from the, from the, the effects of sin and the effects of a sinful creation. This corruptible must put on corrupt, incorruption, and this mortality must put on immortality. So then, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the same which is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. Now this should sound familiar because this is a quote by Paul from Hosea. We read it earlier. God says, I will be your deliverer. I will. And as he's unrepentant about his destruction and overcoming of the consequence of sin, which is death, this is what he's confirming. And he uses Paul the Apostle to confirm it to the New Testament church, to you and I. Death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, just as Jesus said from the cross, all that God has promised, all that he has fulfilled to deliver mankind, it is finished in his paying for our sinfulness. That God has fulfilled his promises, he has said here, to ransom them from the power of the grave. Now, not all will receive that. And it's a sad state of affairs, but it is the truth nonetheless.
We read, read about, about that, that in the book, book of Romans, Romans in, in particular. But nonetheless, God himself did everything necessary. He said, I will be thy king. I will be thy ransom. I will be, and I am the only savior. This is the nation of Israel, but not only to the nation of Israel, to all of mankind, to you, to me, to our friends, family, co-workers, to those that we might encounter at the grocery store, whoever it may be. We have an opportunity, not only do we have an opportunity, we have a commission, a command from Jesus Christ himself that we would be those who would tell people about this very news. I'm convinced more and more that it is foreign to more and more people this truth. Not only outside the church, but even within the church. If there's, there's a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of the gospel, and people are believing a false gospel and therefore believing that they're saved without the confidence and the assurance that they really are. And, and perhaps they aren't. But more and more, the people that we may come in contact with, this is completely foreign because this is not the foundation that our country espouses any longer. This isn't the foundation that the church promotes for the most part because what it does is it talks first about sin. It's unappealing. That doesn't, doesn't fill seats. And it doesn't fill coffers and we can't pay for the building project or whatever it may be. But it's really, really important for us as believers, those who take the word of God seriously, who desire to see those that we love and that are near and dear to us, be born again, to be born in the spirit so that they might receive eternal life. They, they may have the power of the, the ransom of Jesus Christ that we proclaim it clearly and boldly. And as Paul would say, unashamedly, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1 16. Terrible paraphrase. I apologize. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. I praise you. Uh, Lord, that as we do so, uh, that it is effective to us, that it is so applicable. And as, Lord, we look at these things and as we study through uh, what Israel has gone through and, Lord, what your loving hand of correction has done in respect to uh, addressing their sinfulness, their idolatry, their rejection of you, Lord, we understand that, that is the result of what they have sown. That you didn't originate it, it wasn't even your desire, perhaps, Lord, that, that they would receive that kind of correction. But as a result of who you are, your nature and your character, Lord, you couldn't condone it. Any more than you can condone it in our lives or the lives of any other person. And so, Lord, with that understanding, we come with grateful hearts. You've, You've done, done everything, that you are our salvation, that you provided the ransom yourself so that you might be just and also the justifier. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, all that he has purchased on our behalf, Lord. I praise you for your word that makes clear that salvation is through him and him alone, not of any works that we do, not of any righteousness that we may bear in ourselves. 
because we know, Lord, that our righteousness falls far short. As we praise you this morning, Lord, as we have opportunity to sing and to rejoice over all that you've done, I pray, Lord, that it would be the response of hearts that are quickened and pricked by your spirit this morning. Confronted by the truth of your word, Lord, may we praise you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.